0: hello everyone welcome to the alaska cast today we're talking with denali hogsden she is the creator and host of the on the land podcast a lifelong alaskan a commercial fisherwoman and she is here with us over zoom and we're so happy to have you denali welcome to the show
1: Hm, Hajj distance? And if you don't mind I do like to give my own introduction as well. So I would Adette it. Denali Hodgson <laughs> Adette Denali Hodgson to Ezra. Melinda Chase and David Hodgson to Egg, South Yes Hispan, Fairbanks, listo And in that introduction I just introduced who I am, who my family is, uh, Melinda Chase and David Hodgson and the fact that I was from the villages of Anvik on the Yukon River and Uh, South NACNIC in Bristol Bay and I am currently located in Fairbanks.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Denali. Thank you for that and welcome to the show and I'm very glad to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of just growing up in Alaska? What was your childhood like?
1: Ooh, (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect this question right out of the gate. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up in Alaska, you know, it's always funny to be getting this question as and Alaskan and I haven't I haven't gotten it from another Alaskan in quite some time and so I feel like the dynamic has changed. I've actually uh, been away for school for the last five years in the winter time uh, and so quite a bit of my you know most recent memories are a compilation of being out in Bristol Bay in the summer fishing and then being on the east coast going to school but I've been thinking about my childhood quite a bit, and especially coming back to Fairbanks in this time of coronavirus and uh, uh, reflecting on the ways that this land has raised me and the relationships that I've had to this area. You know, we are currently in Fairbanks here on Lower Tananastane land, and I just got back from a walk out up by um, Esther Dome, which I've had you know various memories there over the years but yester- yeah yesterday I went out for a ski there and I've just been walking up around the birch trees and the, and the spruce and been reflecting on I think the like the intimacy that comes from knowing other um, non-human relationships. In your life, and I've really enjoyed being around uh, the birch and the spruce trees. Because growing up, that's I was mostly outside. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: There was times where I was, you know, indoors, and we definitely would binge watch TV uh, here and there. Um, mostly coming back after school, but for a large part, like I, I played outside in my childhood. I was always running along the big banks of the Tanana and the Yukon rivers. And spending time out in the woods playing various, you know, childhood games. And I think so often now how being outside, just doing whatever, you know, taking walks, uh, making mud cakes, (laughs) Um, going out and, you know, checking a a net or cruising along the river on, on a boat has really shaped my adult life. And so that's that's been a nice reflection coming home and I think communicating or figuring out how to communicate those relationships to, to people that might not know the Arctic or not might not know Alaska and it's I think the intimacy that comes from from growing up in this land is something that's like constantly on my mind. So I I thank you for that that question and it also is one where it allows me to, to think forward too um, while while remembering that past.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that very, very thoughtful answer. And is that part of the reason, um, looking back and looking forward, is that part of the reason why you created? the podcast on the land um, and for, for those that haven't listened to it yet I, I really recommend it it's it's beautiful it's each episode is is really a story and and it's weaved together so well um, why why was that something that you wanted to, to, to be part of to make
1: I think there's a lot of different pieces of the origin story of uh, on the land and I am still discovering them as we, as we move forward and and on the land as a collective um it we have grown forward from a podcast even in the short seven eight months since our inception (laughs) i i really started working on the podcast itself at the beginning of this last fall semester um of school instead of doing a thesis and uh but I, i think on the land was being created long before that i again, in reflecting on my childhood and reflecting on the ways that my curiosity was, was stricken by various subjects growing up in, in, you know, a Western academic setting here in Fairbanks, uh, which shaped most of my, my childhood education, I was always drawn to, like, um, foreign, like, uh, what is it, foreign correspondent <laughs> like mm-hmm. being a foreign correspondent, I was always drawn to magazines because that is what we grew up with, or I grew up being exposed to in the village, as well. Um, and and then I was always drawn to stories of us as as Indigenous people. You know, I am lucky to have been exposed to through with my mom um, in different curriculum or different different, uh, resources that are out there, different books, different audio tapes that were our people telling our own stories. And I didn't see them necessarily in, you know, University of Park's library or West Valley's library. Like these were, these were gems that were (laughs) kind of here and there in my mom's collection and some of the places that she worked at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And so I think that that's where my curiosity for you know, uh, being engaged with different types of communication styles really came from. And then On the Land has really been born out of the desire to, to communicate and to find a way for us as Indigenous people to, I think, relay in, in English as well as in our own stories what it means to be Indigenous people on the lands that we have a connection to or have been torn away from in various circumstances. Uh, You know, it was created to really discuss some of the issues that we face as Indigenous people in accessing our lands and being able to go out and hunt here in Alaska or go out and fish because there are mechanisms that are in place there are legacies of colonization and there is still continued colonization that has not allowed us that access um and i feel like i'm going off on a tangent here but i feel like it is all related to again that that origin story if you want to call it of of the work that on the land is doing um but at the same time there's a reason it's a collective you know there's a reason that i i mentioned in our first you know full-length episode that I have known from the beginning that I cannot carry this alone because our people have never carried our stories alone. We share them. you know. We share them with protocol. We share them with consent. We share them by ensuring that they are done in the right way and, and they, are, they are protected. If, if, if our young people or our guests are not ready for a certain part of that story, you keep it until they are. And so I see, my, I see the work that we're doing at On the Land Media Collective as a way of telling stories in the way that we've always done, but really utilizing the technologies that we have and the, the ways that we've been made to be contemporary Indigenous people in order to, again, remember who we are and be able to be in conversation with that both at an individual level and then at a, at a community level
0: as well. Absolutely. And you touched on a, a lot of different things there, but one thing that I, something that, you know, has been present, I think, in, in a lot of our lives as, as Alaskans and nationwide, and um, how, how was it leaving Alaska uh, for school, going to Brown University, and then for an internship in Washington, D.C.? Um, was that a shift? Was that was that a difficulty? Um, how 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 did that feel?
1: <laughs> Jeez, Kuba, you've done your research. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's funny because you know going to a university as going to a university like Brown, yeah. um, which is an Ivy League that in many ways, you know, we, we joked while being at Brown that we don't, it's kind of an Ivy League, but it's kind of not because a lot of people don't know about it in the same way that they know like Harvard and uh, Cambridge and Yale and some of these other larger Ivy League institutions. Um, Yeah. And I, I mean, I can talk about certain parts of it, you know, it wasn't to answer you like shortly and succinctly. It wasn't easy. It was, incredibly difficult. And would I do it again? Probably not. Um, I probably would not go back East for my education. If I could have done it again, I would have stayed on the West coast and, and maybe even stayed in Alaska, Uh, probably a little bit less that one, but I I would have stayed on the West coast uh, because the East coast can be very alienating uh and i use that word very intentionally it's it, um as an indigenous person the east coast is someplace that you can and i well i can feel the the legacies of colonization there so deeply in my body um because it was one of the first places of contact mm. and Brown was an institution that was built on stolen indigenous lands by the hands of enslaved African-American people. And when you think about older institutions like that, that have consistently not recognized the truth of their origin, um, it's a hard place to be. (laughs) <laughs> and it's a hard place to be when they are trying to shift and yet mistakes that really can be detrimental to young people um, that are growing and and learning and engaging in the world in new and exciting ways um, it's a hard place for those mistakes to happen at an institutional level and so I'm thankful for my brown education and I am incredibly grateful for the network of people that it has connected me to that is ultimately the biggest gift that it has given me and I'm thankful for the people that Brown has like brought together and I'm thankful for the land and for the Narragansett and the Wampanoag people that I was able to you know have a little bit more connection to and who did me make me feel at home when I was able to visit them but going away for school and and leaving home i don't think i, I realized the gravity of that and, until i left uh, mm-hmm. and so i'm thankful to be done with it
0: though you went away for school you came back in the summers and you you fished um, and you know you've written so beautifully about what this experience what those experiences have meant to you on your instagram page and um, in other articles and could you tell us a little bit about what that feels like what is your connection with with fishing
1: mm. so my father is from bristol bay uh, he grew up in the village called south Naknek, and south Naknek is in, on the Naknek river most people know the region by the north village Naknek and by um king salmon which is the Area where you fly into when you when you come to the bay, or one of the areas that you fly into when you come to the bay. Uh, there's also a military base out there, so a lot of people from the Lower 48 will also be a little bit more familiar with King Salmon than they will be with South Nacnyck. And I uh, grew up going back home South Nacnyck in the summertime, and it has always been a place that has called me back, even though you know I was raised in the wintertime in Fairbanks. Um, and then also have a connection to Anvik. So I knew from when I was younger that I wanted to be home, that I wanted to be fishing, that there was really no other, no other option for me. Um, it's, and <laughs> so I, I first got a job um, in Denali National Park where I worked for five seasons. Four seasons, five seasons, I don't know. It's kind of a blur in a good way. Um, <laughs> and I was a cultural interpreter, a raft guide. I helped to run one of the, you know, coffee shops down there, Black Bear, and had a very solid community. But I was always drawn back to the water. It is something that has called me even living here in Fairbanks. You know, sometimes I just need to get on the road and drive down to Anchorage so I can smell the salt water. And it's something that reoccurs in my dreams constantly. And so it really is a calling back home to Bristol Bay. So I uh, had been trying to get on a Setnet site or on a commercial drift boat for many, many years, uh, even starting in high school and always came up against roadblocks and um, the thing about bristol bay is like i i don't only commercial fish back there but i also do a lot of work around protecting it because it is the world's last great sockeye salmon run and it is being being threatened right now by climate change and by the proposed Pebble Mine. and that was a fight that was happening when i was younger and then has also been revived in the last few years and so i got my first commercial drifting job which is one of like the three ways that you can or two 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 of the commercial ways that you can fish out in bristol bay and it takes place on a 32 foot boat you go out and you spend five weeks out on the water you only come in if you need to you know take care of your engine or for some dire circumstance uh the fleet that i fish with fishes hard we fish aggressively. Um, we're fishing round the clock when when the clock when when the there's an opener um, in the bay, which is when you can be fishing, because it's all it's all like scheduled by Alaska mm-hmm. Department of Fishing Game. But so my first <laughs> my first job out there was on a boat. That it was a fun experience. Like they taught me how to long line which is going out for halibut. So I went out in the beginning of May and then I was able to go out for salmon season. And we ultimately on that boat didn't end up seeing eye to eye. And so I I left um, and was luckily hired by another boat the next season. And it's always hit or miss in Bristol Bay. I mean, it is, it's an industry. It's an industry that is, in the market to make money. And so it's one that right now I have been going back and forth on, on my relationship with because because times are changing and fishing for a a commercial industry is a it's a very big choice that you have to make. And ultimately I just want to fish and luckily my people have had a relationship with that animal for, you know, thousands of years. And so I right now am being called so much more to uh, just subsistence fishing, Mm -hmm. to be able to fill my smokehouse with, to be able to cut fish on a daily basis when the fish are running, and to be able to have a freezer and a pantry that's stocked with fish so that I can feed my family and can be gifting that animal to to other people as well, especially as we are facing the circumstances that we are facing with the coronavirus and the economic downturn that we will see after um when and after we come out of like the virus uh and it flattens the curve um (laughs) yeah so i have a very again multi-layered um relationship with with bristol bay and with fishing but it is something that I enjoy that nobody will ever be able to take away from me. <laughs> um, being out on the water and waking up in the morning, you know, apart from apart from the issues that I, I, I have with the industry and just kind of the politics around Bristol Bay right now. I know that some of my best memories in life will be waking up to set the net at 3 a.m. in the morning Right after solstice time, when you are getting the most deepest of oranges, and you know there's just a little bit of wisp in the clouds, and it's either really windy or perfectly calm and flat. Uh, the Nushagak, which is the river that I fish out of right now, uh, and I port out of Dillingham, is expansive. It's huge when you're out in the middle of the quote unquote river it feels like you're out in the middle of the ocean and being somebody that grew up set netting and on rivers like on on smaller interior rivers or on the Yukon that wasn't that expanse of water was never um I was never exposed to that until I went fishing and I remember just being in complete awe my first year and thinking wow like I'm just I'm just out here (laughs) like you are just out there on a 32 foot boat with just your crew and the next, you know, four or five weeks to fish as hard as you possibly can. Um, and then, and then your engine breaks down and then you get a storm and, and shit hits the fan and, Mm -hmm. uh, you got to scramble. But I think that's part of what I love about it too. Um, one of my friends and I were talking about the similarities between being on a boat because he has crewed on tugboats before and is getting his captain's license. And then of course, like I've been spending my last couple summers out in the Bay on a fishing boat. And there's just a different mentality to being out on the water and dealing with boats. It's You're constantly having to be on because most of them are constantly breaking down. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not dangerous in the way that a lot of people think about with like dead, deadly as catch. It's, it's you got to be on your toes because there's so many things that you have to know. You have to know how to re- read the weather. You have to know how to fix an engine or, you know, come up with some kind of, uh, some kind of fix for a leak, which is what we did school last summer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, a uh, it's a precarious time where you're, you're constantly on the edge and that's kind of how it feels like when you're climbing as well. Um, you're just, you're pushing yourself. You're right there. And that's, uh, yeah. yeah. There's nothing like those two feelings.
0: <laughs> right. It, it, it sounds like, like an adventure. Um, and, and along with fishing, I mean, you're, you're a very avid, very skilled climber as well. Uh, did you get that? Get Did you get into that? here in Fairbanks or, or somewhere else? Is it something you picked up along? I know you've traveled a, a lot <laughs> all over all over <laughs> the U.S. Um, and is, is that something that came to you through, through acquaintances, through friends as a way to sort of connect more to the land? Or, or is it something that you discovered by yourself?
1: I would say a little bit of both. Um, I was actually first exposed to rock climbing through the SRCs, like summer kids camp <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and I remember just like seeing the UAF wall and being like dang I gotta get on that um <laughs> like I have to figure out some way to like be on those plastic holes over there you know it's like a little five-year-old going to those summer camps um at UA University of Alaska Fairbanks but again this is one of the memories that came back to me this last fall when I was visiting home and I got to show my good friend um, Kiara and then Gabe Kiara is a, she's a friend from Brown and she actually was just up here because she's supposed to be visiting for the one health conference that was happening at the university mm. and um, and has done like a extensive Arctic research as well and then Gabe is cruise out in Bristol Bay and so I was able to go up to Angel Rocks with them and then did a trip the following week with my sister and her partner. Um, And all of them had never, apart from Selena, my sister had never been to Angel Rocks before. And so being able to see those tours for the first time with new eyes as an adult. And then we scrambled around on the rocks too, just, brought up so much joy in me that i was it was like i was recalling the joy that i felt when i was younger scrambling around on those rocks because i was always trying to figure out you know different routes to get up uh one of the the smaller walls you know while not being harnessed in and not being on a rope and being like six seven years old and (laughs) just trying to play (laughs) just trying to like hide or or do things as much as you can. Again, push push the boundaries as much as I possibly could, um, while knowing knowing the dangers of what it would have been like to fall off of one of those Angel Rocks tours. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a place, or Fairbanks really was one of the places that I was first exposed to it. Which is so funny because I've now that I'm here, I'm like, oh man, where am I going to go rock climbing? <laughs> but I'm sitting in my room right now and I have this nice like 45 degree wall and I'm thinking about putting up holds because it is something that I haven't been able to do as consistently. I wouldn't say that I'm a super skilled climber. Um, I have so much to learn, but it is something that I enjoy and something that I want to keep in my life because it keeps me physically and mentally active. Um, Climbing can be such an internal and, and community sport uh, which you know I played I played volleyball at West Valley and always did team sports growing up but climbing for me is very much like our indigenous native games where if you have a good community around you each one of you can coach each other on how to how to be better at the game you know how to move your body in in a certain way so that you are Being more efficient with your energy and more in tune with your your mental agility, and so I I think that that's part of the reason that I've really been drawn to climbing. And then it also just gets you outside. It's one of the ways to know a place intimately. And like you mentioned, I, I have been very fortunate to travel around quite a bit of the United States or quite a bit of Turtle Island, and Climbing and meeting other indigenous climbers has been one of the biggest gifts because they know how to be in relationship with the lands that they are climbing on. And that is, that is an issue that many tribes face across Turtle Island is that a lot of climbers are climbing in sacred spaces and those sacred spaces have been not taken care of for or stewarded, um, in some of the proper ways and so one of the things that i really look forward to and i know that we look forward to as indigenous climbers is just like spreading that awareness and spreading that knowledge and and having conversations with our fellow climbers uh, that might not have been exposed to or have been educated in the right way under the western academy and the western institutions that we have here in the united states for education
0: yeah absolutely absolutely there's always I When I look at something like the, the the outdoor industry, which is such a such a, a, a big thing right with so many different facets, I, I've, I've, I've been thinking many people have, but about almost the sort of extractive nature of that, that some, some people, some companies sort of approach the outdoors in. Um, and I'm sure this is something that you've run into many times, but try not to spit out too big of a question. <laughs> uh too oh, open-ended please. of a question but it, it, <laughs> I'm sure that bothers you but how how do we what, what's a how how should people going into the outdoors approach their experience
1: <laughs> very open-ended Cuba <laughs> it is
0: yeah
1: <laughs> yeah yeah um and I actually, you know, I would love to be engaging with you in a dialogue, maybe more so for this conversation, because I know that you also have spent a great deal of time outside and grew up skiing. Like, I know, I know, like, I watched you as a young person doing volleyball, like excelling in, in Nordic skiing. And that was something that I um, was always really unsure about, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. I look back and... You know, I, I'm coming back to Fairbanks this winter. Like, I got back in December, and I was like, "Damn, I need to get a pair of skis. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a pair of Nordic skis so that I can get out because that is the way that you can be outside here yeah. in Fairbanks, which is very Fairbanks specific um, yeah. and kind of like Flatland, Alaska specific. So, you know, I would love to hear maybe a little bit about your relationship too with um, being outside, and then and then I can we can tag team it.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a, thank you for, for, for inviting me um, to that. That's, oh man. I, so I've, I've been cross country and downhill skiing since I was, you know, since I could walk essentially since I was two or three years old. Um, And uh, my, my, my parents and I, we came here from, uh, from Poland Uh, we came to Fairbanks from Poland uh, when I was just a baby. Um, And my dad, and mom, really, they'd always loved getting outside. Poland is is fortunate in that it's a country that has basically every type of topography. So there's several mountain ranges, um, especially near the borders, and they would advent they would go into those mountain ranges and um, essentially it was one of the ways that they could connect with each other and themselves, and, and and some way that they could they could ground themselves. And they always spoke about it with such. such reverence. And I think that was one of the reasons that they ended up moving to Fairbanks, um, is, is because it, it provided such access to, to these beautiful places. Um, and we we had skied, um, ever since I was uh, tiny. Um, and I'd always loved doing it. Um, and it, was something that I I became pretty good at in, at some point in my life. And then a little bit later became pretty bad at again. Uh, but it, it, <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that <laughs> I, you, you wouldn't want to see me now. It's pretty, it's pretty rough. Um, but I, I've always had a little bit of a, uh, growing up in Fairbanks, it took me a while to realize, uh, I mean the, the school that we went to, uh, West Valley High School here in Fairbanks, had a nickname that I heard starting in middle school, uh, which is, it was called White Valley. Um, and that, that was something that was whispered along the, the halls or said loudly in the halls of, of Ryan Middle School where I went to. Um, and coming there and um, being on the, the, the sports teams that I was, which was cross-country running, cross-country skiing, uh, and track and field uh, that's that nickname mirrored my experiences and it, it really uh, highlighted people i mean um it took my while to see but my co, my teammates they were white i was white um skiing is a great way to see the outdoors but it's also an uh, it's an expensive sport um it's it's not very accessible it takes a lot of time energy money to fly um, and to get ski lessons and everything like that. And um, of course, not not everybody on the team was, but my my experience with that has really um, evolved. And it's it's kind of now a a question mark, and I don't know how to approach the sport. Um, And as that was one of the first ways that I really um, went out into the world, um, that and hiking, which my parents and I continued to do, um, i I don't know I've, I've <laughs> I, I don't have an answer i I have many questions um, and, and a lot of them seem to go into the direction that uh, you know being able to access the outdoors at all um, brings up many questions of, of, of equity of who has the time to go into those spaces um, how are those spaces treated um, how is education about those spaces passed down um, and, and there are a lot of barriers around in my eyes, not just race, but, but wealth. And, um, I don't know. It's something that I, I have, I have a lot of half baked potatoes about <laughs> you could say, um, <laughs> but that, that that's, that's a bit of my ramble and I, I'm not sure if I went anywhere, but I, uh, I would love to, to hear what you think or, um, yeah, just conversate.
1: Yeah. I mean, first, you know, how's your good distance for recognizing, the ways that West Valley did really uphold, I think a lot of, you know, <laughs> the legacies of, um, it just up, it upheld that legacy of being white Valley. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just like put it blankly. And I, again, came coming back home throughout breaks the last five years and just revisiting and, and growing with people. And I'm still, close friends with so many folks that I was close friends with in, in high school. And seeing the ways that they've also reflected on their educational experience at West Valley, it really makes me hopeful. Um, because I, I do think people have been reflective of, of the ways that it is a school that does not... Um, that form and foster a diverse community at all mm,
0: yeah. <laughs> unfortunately
1: yeah. um and and i think in many ways that there, there are some demographic issues that were happening around the time i mean the west side of town is much more higher income mm. because of the ways that the university uh plays a role in in that being here on the west side of town and that's getting very very Fairbanks specific but yeah, yeah, a, I, you know. yeah. go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah. Many of the reasons that you just pointed to were reasons that I couldn't quite put my finger on when I was in high school, mm-hmm. but are the exact reasons why I did not feel comfortable being in those spaces as an athlete. And I wholeheartedly consider myself as an athlete. You know, I grew up didn't not really thinking that I could run, but I can run. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I could run and. I love to do it on the trail. It is something that I have been fostering a relationship with over the course of the last year more intensely. But I didn't realize that I was an excellent runner until I went to school and road crew at Brown (laughs) and had to run. And then it was like, oh, hey, this could have been something that could have been very enjoyable. But West Valleys, the way that running and the way that those communities are, are meant to be engaged with. And this is, I mean, this is such a hard conversation to have because young people don't know what they know. They just see examples. And I think Fairbanks in terms of its progressiveness is at least on the West side of town, we are fairly progressive. We are fairly liberal. Um, But a lot of times they don't really want to get engaged in those race conversations. You know, a lot of times, I don't think most of my peers growing up realized, like, they knew I was Native, but I don't think they really wanted to, like, recognize it. People didn't see me growing up in Fairbanks and, and see me going to potlatches. They didn't see me going to the tribal hall. They didn't understand why I ended up leaving West Valley because I needed to go to Mount Edgecombe to be with other Native kids because... I didn't necessarily feel wholly welcomed at West Valley. Yeah, you know. Um,
0: th- yeah, that that that. <laughs> so lo- lo- looking back at um, the behavior as a as a collective of just the the structure, and I, I'm not I'm not surprised, <laughs> and I, I, I'm sorry, and I I don't know. It is it's a difficult conversation. I I. I I don't think it was something um, I don't think it was something that kids as individuals chose to do, but there was just the expectation was, it was almost like a, like a, like a, a a whitewashing. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't. um...
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there's any reason to necessarily apologize, you know, it's because we're having conversations about it and that's what makes a difference, you know? And There was learning. And like I said, it's been amazing coming back home over the last five years to recognize the ways that these conversations have shifted in Fairbanks and people are recognizing and waking up to the fact that some of our institutions are not teaching education in the right way. Which, you know, bringing it back to seeing the need for that and seeing the need for us to have curriculum and education that does tell the truth is again part of the reason that we really are invested in and in created on the land because like you highlighted young people don't know, like they don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, but I want to, I'm going to pull a quote from, as we have always done indigenous freedom, through radical resistance by Leanne beto samisaki Simpson. And this has been a book that, um, Leanne has really helped me orient myself in a lot of the things that I've felt but haven't been able to put into words uh, through engaging you know, with West Valley. And then also, I faced a very similar thing when I worked as a cultural interpreter in Denali National Park, which, um, which I'll go into a little bit more after I read this quote. So this is under the land as pedagogy and in research and education in the chapter. Being engaged in land as pedagogy, as a life practice, inevitably means coming face-to-face with settler colonial authority, surveillance, and violence, because this practice places Indigenous bodies in between settlers and their money. The practices of hunting, fishing, and living off the land within my territory have been a direct challenge to set a settler colonialism since 1923 and the imposition of the Williams Treaty. Being a practitioner of land as pedagogy and learning in my community also means learning how to resist this imposition. It's a process of learning how to be on the land anyway. There are countless stories that I could tell here about surveillance, criminalization, and violence that occurred on the land while Mitzi, Sagig, Nishnabeg are engaged as practitioners of Nishnabwin. But the story I want to leave you with is one that comes from someone who has invested greatly in my intelligence as Miss Nubwe, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, So land, I mean, ends up going into a story to talk about land as pedagogy and land as education uh, through her indigenous or their indigenous worldview. But I kind of bring up that conversation around surveillance because um, you know, surveillance and the criminalization of us being on the land because you were talking about the outdoor industry being extractive and it is. It is in many ways. It's extractive of experience. It's extractive of being able to go out and if you are a take your classic, you know, backcountry skier who's able to afford a pair of Seven to eight hundred dollar skis, um, five hundred dollar bindings, seven hundred dollar like backcountry touring boots and poles, <laughs> in addition to all your like gear, it is expensive, yeah. and yet you like take your classic white cis male who's able to go out and do that in the backcountry of the Chugach Mountains. Well that's not an experience that everybody's going to get. That's not accessible. It's not accessible usually because of the, the finances that go into it. It's not accessible because of the education that it takes to get for avalanche danger. And it's not accessible a lot of times because of gas and time. And the fact that in Alaska, you know, we are, indigenous people are 14, around 14% of the population. And we also have the highest, um, levels of quote unquote poverty, <laughs> you know, so as a young indigenous person growing up, like I was exposed to skiing because my, my mom was when she was younger, which we are very fortunate for, but that was through a tribal, um, a tribal program, mm. which is again, a whole nother story, but I'm, I'm thankful for the, the little slices of skiing that I got when I was, you know six years old was when I was first put on a pair of downhill skis. And then, and then a season that I got at Moose Mountain when I was 15. And then I wasn't able to pick up skis again until after I had my job commercial fishing or after I had my job being a raft guide in Denali, which is a whole nother level of accessibility. (laughs) And so, you know, when I think about the outdoors as a, as a extractive industry, I'm thinking about the barriers of entry that just come with gear and equipment and time and, and energy and, and gas, which is, of course, like a, a fossil fuel, which brings us down and into the extractive economies of oil and gas. <laughs> but I'm also thinking about the fact that, you know, we started off this conversation with how did you, you know, what, what was your childhood like growing up? And like I said, my childhood was growing up on the banks of the river, making mud pies and climbing around Angel Rocks, not knowing that there was a sport called climbing and, you know, going out to fish camp and learning how to camp in a canvas tent that was really heavy. Most people would like talk about the ways that we went out camping and when we went out to go look for firewood in the fall time and bring it back home as clamping, you know, my mom wanted to be comfortable when we went outside. Mm-hmm. And there's in in each one of those stories that I just told, for the most part, they were in order to go out to get wood. They were in order to go out and you know find animals. They were in order to go out and go berry picking. Um, there was some aspect of it nurturing not only the soul in terms of being outside, but then also ensuring that we're bringing something back home for our sustenance, for longevity. And, um, yeah, in keeping those memories and then also figuring out what my relationship to the land is as a skier, as a climber, as some of these more, like, contemporary, like, ways to get outside that are recognized by the outdoor industry. Um, I personally am trying to find like that medium of also figuring out what does it mean to be a native person that is going outside that does have access to right now because of fishing um, to these sports and, and how do I be in good relations? So I don't like you, I don't have any answers and I think it's going to be different for everybody. And I think it's going to take conversations with the people that are in that place, but it ultimately means connecting. And I think that's what's so exciting about our time right now is it feels like everybody has a lot of questions and with COVID-19 and the ways that it is putting people into social isolation. I'm curious about the answers to the question that you're asking into the questions, and to so many other questions that other people are asking about how how are we going to move forward through this? How are we going to deal with economic collapse? How are we going to deal with a healthcare system that is obviously failing us? And I think it is really us digging deep into the uncomfortability that come out of a conversation like the one that we are having even though I personally don't find this uncomfortable, like this is great. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can just like keep going all day. <laughs> but, <Right. laughs> you know, like, talking about racism, talking about colonization, talking about um, the extractive industry of the outdoors, talking about the extractive industry of the commercial fishery, those are not easy conversations that people are used to having. Um, and yet I think they are being pr- brought to the forefront. You know, we've had many, many people from... To the Black Panthers, trying to have these conversations for decades, and so you know, <laughs> I'm excited for for the fact that like you've started the Alaska cast that you are having conversations with the people in our communities that are pushing the status quo because it needs to happen here in Fairbanks, it needs to happen across Alaska, and we need to be we need to be having these discussions. So. Yeah, thank you for asking the hard questions.
0: Thank you for for answering them and, and going beyond, you know, a a, a one one person conversation. I, I I appreciate that. I think it enriches the conversation, <laughs> um, even if it's with a dummy like me. Well, <laughs> um, oh,
1: well, you know, you have you have two podcast hosts on the conversation. Right,
0: right. <laughs> we got to trade off exactly. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, but I think that that's, that is one of the things that we're trying to do it on the land as well. And that I've been thinking about, and I'd be curious to have this conversation with you. It doesn't have to be right now, but you know, moving into the future. And I do challenge your listeners as well as my listeners. It's Why are we so used to having interviews? You know, why are we so used to just like having that one sided conversation?
0: Right. Yeah. That's, that's, I don't think
1: that it's, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll, say, I'll save my answer for, to that for a little bit longer um, and maybe we can bring, you know, our listeners through that together. Um, but like you said, I think the two way conversation is, it's, it brings a lot more um, dynamism to, mm-hmm. to a visit like this.
0: I think you're right. Yeah. Shifting gears. <laughs> You've recently <laughs> uh, adopted a puppy.
1: Oh my goodness, I know. I yeah. should probably go let her out. I'm yeah. going to let her <laughs> out while we're talking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what, is, uh, what kind of a dog is... is uh, Are they?
1: Yeah, Nuna, um, which means land <laughs> in Supiak as well as in a lot of the Inuit languages. Um, Nuna is a husky German shepherd, puppy, and... Um, who is just absolutely passed out right now from our, uh, ski earlier. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, yeah. And I got her from Brevik mission, a friend, actually the same friend that like got me into climbing, um, brought me, brought her down for me and she was a gift to him. So oh. he just, regifted her.
0: It's <laughs> oh. adorable. That's really cute. Yeah. And, you know, throwing, throwing a, puppy into this mix we talked a little bit about this before we started the show but you know you have so much going on <laughs> how, how do you find that balance and I know it's an ongoing conversation but between everything that you do so much stuff um, that has to do with you know being in front of a computer screen and, and whether it's working on your podcast or, or your many other projects and then just you know spending time outdoors going skiing um, <laughs> how, do, how does that how do you it's you're in the process right now, which I think is the most interesting part of trying to juggle all those things. How how are you, (laughs) how are you dealing with, with that kind of mix of, of so many different things?
1: Yeah. Um, I haven't been, you know, I, I am not, I haven't figured it out and I am still figuring it out. Like you said, and in in the process and am in the process, uh, but it's becoming easier and I'll have days where I slip up. You know, I just had a basically a three day stint where me and the team were working on, on the land and I was able to get in a walk with Nuna every day, um, which was great, you know, but apart from like walking and playing with Nuna in between my breaks and doing on the land, there was not much else. And I, as most people can probably pick up from this conversation, like I love variety, like variety brings me a lot of joy. It always has. It's always been, um, because I have so many interests and so many curiosities. And I think I used to try to deny that quite a bit, but now it's like, all right, I am going to, and there's Nuna right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like I am going to find time to do them. And I am going to, allow myself to like fully immerse myself in whatever activity that I'm doing and that's really hard. You know, we live in such a time of multitasking yeah. that multitasking becomes the norm. But what happens when we are able to fully invest ourselves in in being just being absolutely present. And that's something that I've been sitting with for the last <laughs> I think More so in the last like year and a half, two years. Definitely within the last five years. Um, But it is it is a balance, and I've the the short answer is I've been trying to slow down time. Mm. When I left on my this last road trip that I took in the lower forty-eight and across Turtle Island, visiting different relatives that I've gotten the chance to meet in the last five years, I had one intention in mind. And that was to slow down time because we do move too fast. I personally can move so fast through a day, through a week, through a year that I don't allow myself time to just like pause and reflect and not even pause, but like feel every breath of whatever activity I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And it does take slowing down because it takes attention and it takes intention right.
0: um, it doesn't seem like our, our society really rewards um, I mean the process it rewards more the accomplishment at the end and, and you know lining up those accomplishments and and doing them definitely. Uh, quickly and efficiently efficiency thrown around quite a bit um, but yeah that, that's something that I've 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 experienced a lot too especially with um, the way that, a lot of jobs nowadays are are um and i i enjoy this too i really i i love um i don't know if i would i've had several jobs where I just do the exact same thing over and over and over again and i've i've hated them <laughs> my my favorite type of type of work is stuff that's multifaceted that that has you jump between okay. different types of disciplines and and different projects and um, but it it's still with kind of the mindset of of go 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 um and you know it's it's easy to kind of soak that in. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a sort of expectation and people look up to folks that, you know, hustle and have, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, side hustles and and main hustles and, and kind of mix that all together. And, um, I think that's, that's a really powerful and important thing is to, to, to enjoy not just the time around activities, but the activities themselves and, um, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. glad I'm glad that's that's the balance that you're you're going towards.
1: <laughs> and we're trying to do that. That's something that I'm like really trying to stress as we are growing on the land because it would be so easy to burn and churn. It'd mm-hmm. be so easy to go in, build a business. You know, I I quote unquote studied whatever the hell that means, um, <laughs> social enterprise you know social entrepreneurship in in college in public policy and anthropology um, but in learning those frameworks of building a business you're right like it's we under the neoliberal frameworks that we have in this country are always told to pull yourself up from the bootstraps mm-hmm. to go on to the next project even right now in the time of coronavirus people are expected to go home and work from home Mm
0: -hmm.
1: what happens when we are working from home and we aren't able to rest fully for when we actually do have to integrate into back into like society with one another and we're going to be facing the mental health challenges that come along with social isolation especially when people are only used to working constantly okay you've Mm -hmm. you've put an entire society into into social isolation as it's being called (laughs) (laughs) and then you expect them to be on a screen in order to be productive, in order to make the current United States economy move and in order for us to figure out more ways to consume. How is that sustainable? That isn't sustainable. That's not, that's not what is going to feed people. That's not what's going to like allow people to rest. And so I think it is it is wholly about the process if we are going to be creating organizations creating collectives creating quote-unquote businesses in the in the future we have to learn how to slow down and 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 produce and yeah i'll use that word too like produce quality produce produce the time that we want in the day to, to do the things that we enjoy and to be able to enjoy our work. Um, and there's a lot more nuances that come with that in terms of, you know, justice aspects and who does have the ability to take that time to, um, yeah, I guess, absolutely. yeah, take that. Yeah. yeah. Take that time. You
0: know? right. right, It's, it's, it's a helping. luxury that, you know, there are people that aren't, uh, of course, able to work at home and, or, uh, able to work at home a luxury but there's there's a wide range of of again um i guess equity (laughs) in in time yeah Um, you know i've heard i've heard a a lot of um from a lot of financial guides and everything like that that you know the, the end result isn't currently it's it's not that necessarily a chase for more money but it's that money can be the one of the only ways that people find real freedom (laughs) where they're able to actually sort of um approach and um kind of take take advantage i guess of all the of all the lovely things that the world has to offer but it's it's an exclusive thing um and it's Mm -hmm. yeah it's 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 troubling that that's the only real only way really to get there is through you know hoarding wealth
1: yeah i I think if you I think if you're looking outside what you already have then I would say then that's that's the experiences that you get, right? I think what I'm excited about is is people spending time hopefully slowing down a little bit and being able to observe the trees outside their window. Hmm. See how, how in Fairbanks they're moving more than they used to because of the higher winds that we're having due yeah. to climate change. Yeah. You know, like I think that there hopefully are, are ways that people are being forced to slow down right now um, that maybe they will recognize that the cash economy is not everything and that we do have the ability right now to to be moving into more equitable, um, more equitable economies, <laughs> more equitable relationships with one another where healthcare workers the people on the front lines and the grocery stores don't have to be on top of things because we have fully functioning closed loop systems within our own communities. Um, And I think that's a, that's a huge ask, you know, but you, you wanted to talk on the topic of a just transition and we just, you know, that's that's what our first couple episodes are about. And we just had, we hosted that here in Fairbanks. You know, Fairbanks just had a conversation around a just transition. And so right now, what does it mean for us to be putting all of these plans that we've had? We're constantly making plans as a society. Mm. We're constantly coming up with policies. What does it mean for us, us to really believe in action wholly, wholeheartedly and be able to support each other through that action in a just way? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think we do, we have the blueprints of it. I think we have the blueprints of a just transition. There are already many organizations across Alaska working on it right now. And we have, you know, luckily we are a state that was only colonized fairly recently. You know, a lot of our, so many of our indigenous elders do remember a time when they were, on the trap line. My papa was just telling me stories like a week and a half ago when I introduced Nuna to him about his time running dog. You know, we as Alaskans are used to living in relationship to the land, I think a little bit more than a lot of people across, across um, Turtle Island, you know, at least people that are in the cities, <laughs> <laughs> um, And so I think we have the tools, we have the mechanisms here in the state, and I think that would really allow us to to be and set an example for what a trust transition can look like within a localized context um, across across many different places, across many different, you know, whether it's Turtle Island or um, or other parts of the world.
0: Yeah. So, so looking looking forward into the future um of of Alaska which you know you, you're not gonna have to guess it but are you are you more um optimistic pessimistic what do you think um are you looking forward to what the future brings
1: oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely um I was just thinking about this the other night because my mom has always She's always she's always said like oh well, you're always looking to the next thing and then I was reading in I think the Alaska Native Reader about the fact that we are we as indigenous people are forward looking people you know the indigenous principles of a just transition talk about and and our elders across Turtle Island have always talked about the fact that we plan for seven generations ahead so I don't think looking towards the future is a bad thing. And definitely looking towards the past and remembering that is not a bad thing at all because we need to we need to do that in order to, to remember, <laughs> um, which goes perfectly to like I think why the Just Transition Summit was named Remembering Forward. That's what we're doing right now, and so I'm I'm very optimistic because I don't think we're going to get through this in any other way. I think we need to acknowledge and support each other as we are facing a really rough time economically Mm. as our bank accounts drain, as we don't know what the heck is going on with our budget system (laughs) in Alaska uh, as we face the 2020 presidential election. There are so many uncertainties right now. But we do know that there's going to be, you know, tomorrow. (laughs) We do know that we are constantly making choices right now with what we're doing with our time why we are in social isolation and so why don't we put that time to use and really be envisioning our our plans and our actions for the just transition for the just transition that has already been happening in the state and many different levels
0: denali thanks so much for talking with us Denali's the creator and the host and part of the collective of the on the land podcast and so much more thank you again
1: pleasure <laughs> your get to thank you for inviting me on the Alaska cast and I really look forward to you know collaborations in the future with you.
0: The Alaska cast.